This is Patrick McLaren welcoming you to another edition of Free Exchange, the Badger Institute podcast. Today we are here with Sean Kennedy, who uh, is a scholar of crime and justice, has done some great work for us in our mandate for Madison last year, looking at the crime statistics that really define a uh, a fairly grim reality in Milwaukee. And he has more recently updated those figures as uh, another year's data has come out. And we're going to be talking to Sean today about what that means for Milwaukee, what it means for Wisconsin as a whole, and what can be done about it. Sean, welcome. Thank you so much for having me. Tell me this. uh, One of the um, key takeaways of the big study that you did last year in 2022 for the mandate for Madison was that while Wisconsin as a whole is a fairly safe state, its largest city, Milwaukee, is not a safe city and is in fact was in fact beset by a sharp rise in crime after years of declining crime, particularly in some egregious categories, some very grave categories such as uh, uh, homicide, aggravated assaults, so forth some of which everybody here has seen on television nightly, the rash of auto thefts and so forth. What's more recent is that you were working off data that was up through 2021. Uh, now we have uh, 2022 data, I believe, out. And there was a bit of uh, crowing by some city officials, a very muted sort of crowing, because the numbers were looking better than they had in the previous year. But one of the points that you made in a new piece for us out last month was that uh, this isn't a great moment for Milwaukee nonetheless. Can we talk a bit about those numbers? Tell me, uh, what's the context Mm -hmm. here? I mean, the context is that we've seen particularly violent crime categories rising dramatically while Property crimes have continued their steady decline over the years. Most recently, in the last five to six years, we've seen a dramatic drop in things like burglary and in in other property-related crimes. But in fact, we've seen a huge rise. Obviously, it is a headline grabbing that we've seen a 100% rise since 2019 in homicides. And off the low, only a decade ago, Uh, We're up about 150% in homicides in 2022. Uh, 214 is a near record and may well be the record uh, in the last 30 to 35 years. So Milwaukee is one of the most dangerous cities in the Midwest of its size and certainly is significantly more dangerous than it was only a few years ago. And the rest of the state has seen a divergence where either the numbers are relatively flat or only increased slightly in those violent crime categories, while their property crime numbers have either declined at a faster rate or stayed flat. So we're seeing a divergence both on the two types or categories of crime, violent crime and property crime, but more importantly, we're seeing a divergence geographically. So Wisconsin is getting safer overall or is safer than it, than its peers, but is less safe in the city of Milwaukee, its largest metropolitan area, and obviously the the population sink for the state. So people who commute into the city or live in the city are, are less safe than they were only a few years ago. So when the city officials 
sort of crow that year-on-year data shows a decline, the analogy we use is you climbed up from a valley to a mountaintop and you come down to a plateau only only slightly uh, lower and you're bragging that it's gone down. And that's sort of a game of percentage changes. So the way to think about that very simply is in 2019, there were 8,300 violent crimes in Milwaukee City. Last year, there were 9,600 violent crimes. But what that sort of elides over is that we've increased dramatically over those three years, but we've come down from a peak of 10,000 violent crimes. So a huge jump in violent crime and then a slight decline looks like a drop, but in fact, we're still at a very high or elevated level relative to where we were only a few years ago. And homicide is obviously a leading indicator as well as non-fatal shootings and other high-profile acts of violence. So we're not more safe in Milwaukee than we were a few years ago, even though the numbers are declined from last year's extremely elevated levels. This is, I mean, if you're an optimist, if you're a very cross your fingers, hopeful sort of person, you'd say, oh, this is uh, maybe the start of a trend. We could hope, but that is hope is not a a strategy here, uh, is it? What's striking to me is if we take a look in the uh, the new piece that you did, you've got data here. Going back a long way, the homicides graph is is remarkable here. We had, as of 2019, there was uh, what a, just a shred under 100 homicides in Milwaukee that year. And this was a long, steady decline over time uh, since uh, uh, it, it had peaked a little bit in 2015. But even that was after what looks like a decline back as far as 2003. Then, as of 2020, 2021, 2022, it's off the charts. It's up around 200 a year. It's twice. It's doubled. And, and and you do something else remarkable here. You you also provide the total of homicides and non-fatal shootings. Uh, that is to say, a homicide that didn't actually wind up working, so to speak. And if we're going to say it in a horrifying way. Add those two together, and it gets no better. Either way, this is doubled. Yeah, it's 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 really dramatic. And, and to be fair, just to clarify, when you combine homicides with non-fatal shootings, not all homicides are gun-related, but the vast majority in both Milwaukee and other major cities are between 85 and 95% of homicides uh, are firearm-related. So this is not a perfect combined category, but it gives you a rough idea that we are now going from roughly 500 of these murders plus non-fatal shootings to over a thousand, which is a much more dramatic number than even 200, because it says that as you as you alluded to, these are attempted homicides. These are just people shot four people and three lived. If they were, you know, God forbid, more accurate. We could have had four homicides. So those are just cases where somebody survives. And one thing we've seen in other areas that is sort of hard to put a figure on, but when you look at non-fatal shootings or other attempted murders, the homicide figures, if not for prompt and high-quality medical care, would be significantly higher. We've seen the ratio of non-fatal shootings to homicide in Baltimore and in Chicago rise dramatically when new hospitals or trauma centers were put closer to the violence. So in Chicago a few years ago, they opened a trauma center on the south side. 
and the south side and, and the west side are the two hot spots for for murder there. And they previously, the only trauma center was in the north side, which means that they were crossing downtown traffic and ambulances to get people who were near death to an emergency room doctor who had gunshot specialties. Now they have access to one right, you know, a few minutes away and people are living. And in Baltimore, we've seen the same thing where uh, it was a two to one ratio where two people would survive a homicide for everyone that would die in a shooting. And now it's three and a half to one. So more and more people are surviving these shots because there are two trauma centers and in Baltimore, for example, staffed by former army combat surgeons. So these people who have expertise in dealing with war wounds, which is what some of these places look like, war zones. I mean, Chicago, obviously, his nickname is Chirac. And now Milwaukee is looking more and more like that. We may see this number decline in homicides if a new trauma center would open in one of these hotspots or there was improved uh, 911 response times or things like that. But that doesn't mean that the incidents of violence are declining. All of that speaks to adaptation, which is wonderful. And uh, we're all grateful for uh, the um, remarkable skills of trauma surgeons, but it doesn't get at the underlying reason that people are being taken to a trauma center. Somebody wanted them dead and did something that broke the law. What we've got going on here is not just homicides, of course. There's a great deal of other crime as well. Can you split out a bit of how much of the talk about whether crime is rising, falling, where the trends are, are driven by the statistical issue of less serious crimes being far more numerous? Yeah, crime in a lot of ways is a volume game. And what I mean by that is the total number of crimes by category, violent or property, and then even subcategory, homicide versus burglary, are reflective of the number of incidents. There are fewer homicides than there are robberies, and there's certainly fewer homicides than there are thefts. When you see that differential, any change, some small change in a single category that is of greater volume, it effectively washes out the rise in another category. So the simple example in violent crime alone in Milwaukee is that we saw a decrease of about 400 aggravated assaults. Those are assaults uh, that are not called simple assaults. They're incidents where somebody uh, intended to injure someone uh, severely. It was, it was felonious and, and it has some legal specifications, but these are serious beatings. These are non-fatal shootings. These are other things like that. Well, those 400 missing, for want of a better word, aggravated assaults in a single year are twice as many as the number of homicides in a year and four times as many as the increase in homicides. So if you see fewer aggravated assaults, even though as a percentage, it's a small change since we're dealing with 7,200 versus uh, 7,500 aggravated assaults in a year, we see that there's a no, no change in violent crime. So what we saw between 2021 and 2022 was a decline in both aggravated assaults and in robberies, which combined make up more than 90% of all the violent crimes in Milwaukee. So a slight decline in either of those two categories washes out the other crimes. And the same thing applies to an even greater extent when you look at what people sometimes use overall or part 
one crime, which is how the FBI classifies these eight offenses, homicide, rape, robbery, aggravated assault, burglary, theft, auto theft, and arson, those eight offenses, the total volume of offenses may decline, but where they decline is what matters. Because a shoplifting crime is not, in most people's eyes, equivalent to a robbery, let alone a homicide. So seeing a decline in shoplifting doesn't necessarily reflect that you feel more or less safe if other more violent crimes are increasing, but they're not as visible because burglary or larceny are more petty crimes, for want of a better word. And, and that's the same thing that goes with property crimes as a subcategory is auto theft has skyrocketed in Milwaukee over the last few years. It's just astronomical. According to the Milwaukee Police Department data, there were 8,095 or 8,100 auto thefts in 2022. That's a decline from about 10,500 the year before. That decline is dramatic, except for in 2019, there were only 3,500. So you're looking at a tripling or near tripling by 2021 and then a decline from that. So that 2,000 missing auto thefts, according to MPD data, between 2021 and 2022, shrinks the entire volume of crime across the city and particularly drops the volume of property crime. But we're so elevated that coming off that peak doesn't necessarily mean that people feel like their cars are secure. It, so, it, it's it's remarkable here. There, the numbers that you've got have been graphed in our uh, our paper. And yeah, you can see there's been a drop in auto thefts, a heavy drop but it still leaves auto thefts in Milwaukee at twice what they were in 2020, which wasn't that long ago, and was the end of what had been a long declining trend. Something changed. What is it that's changed here? Folks, I'm interrupting real quick to remind you that productions like these are only able to exist with support from individuals just like you. If you find value in this program, we're hoping you may want to give just a little bit of value back. The Badger Institute is a nonprofit organization that strives to create opportunity and protect liberty for all Wisconsinites. We do not accept government funding and rely solely on the generosity of individuals like yourself to support our policy and advocacy work. To learn more or make a donation, visit badgerinstitute.org. We cannot underestimate the knock-on effects from the Floyd incident and cultural milieu that followed. There was obviously a push to defund the police. There was greater public and policy maker hostility to police. And there was a sense of lawlessness and impunity. And, and some of that derives from the courts, judges, and obviously the prosecutor's office in Milwaukee uh, County. We have John Chisholm. And uh, in other parts of the state, there are also people who are equally lenient towards offenders. And obviously, one of those particularly egregious cases was the Waukesha driver who killed people at the Christmas parade. That individual should never have been released, let alone on a thousand dollar bond, but benefited from leniency after trying to assault his girlfriend, uh, also with a car. Uh, and we're seeing repeat offenders increasing share of violence, because one of the things we need to recognize is there is not an unlimited supply of offenders. There is a relatively limited number of people who would commit certain categories of crime. 
they do escalate in the severity of their crime, where somebody who commits one crime will go on to commit more crimes, but they're usually not committing crimes at utter random. So in most cities, they have something they call a strategic subject list. Chicago, that's the term of art they use. And, and for want of a better term, it's called a kill or be killed list. It is the people most likely to kill who have already killed or have already engaged in non-fatal shootings, even if they don't have charges laid against them, they are suspected in those cases, or they are likely and for some reason are being targeted for those non-fatal shootings. They've been a previous victim of a non-fatal shooting, or they've engaged in gang violence that would potentially uh, garner retaliation. Those lists aren't completely comprehensive of those likely to kill or be killed, but they're close. And they rarely exceed 1,000 people. Well, in a city of Milwaukee with 600,000 people, that's not many offenders that if they were incapacitated, you would see a dramatic decline in homicides. And the same applies to robberies and a series of other things where there's a finite, a relatively finite number of people who would commit a street robbery or would commit a bank robbery or you know, even people who engage in auto theft. That's an increasing number of people. But in fact, it's the same individuals doing it over and over again. So if you found out the number of incidents per offender, I would not be surprised. And previous criminology research has shown that the number of auto thefts has not increased because there are more people stealing cars, per se. It is that the same number of people are stealing more cars. And obviously the famous example in Milwaukee is the Kia boys, where some of these kids claim to have stolen 200 cars in a year. Well, if there's 10 Kia boys, there's 2000 cars. So those Kia boys are a problem that if they alone were incapacitated, you could stop a, a huge share of, of auto thefts in the city. So it's it's not always that there are more criminals and more people are, crim, are, are criminally inclined. It's that those who are criminally inclined are not facing consequences. And Floyd exacerbated that on a couple levels. One, there was a general hostility to criminal justice, and that comes from the prosecutor and the courts. And, and there was also antagonism towards the police. So the police don't pursue cases fervently or are unable to do so because they're understaffed or underappreciated or there's non-cooperation from witnesses. And it just becomes a huge snowball where the same offenders get out, they face no consequences, they commit a new crime, and so on and so forth. So now a city like Milwaukee, which had been relatively safe, is becoming less safe over time. You said something here, and it's striking, given that sometimes uh, when the talk turns to crime, especially from people on the left, you'll get the casual reply that, uh, well, it's because of poverty, which always strikes me as sort of awfully patronizing toward people who don't have a lot of money. It's the assumption that uh, well, let, let well they me, all let me, could be criminals. Let me stop but, you uh, there and, and, and quote somebody who's uh, smarter and, and more eloquent than both of us, Pat. H.L. Uh, Macon, the sage of Baltimore, said, to say that poverty causes crime is the greatest slander against the poor. And it really is. It really is. It it, it seems this sort of overdetermined uh, economic analysis as if people were committing homicides. They, they were Jean Valjean smashing a window to take some bread because he was hungry. And in point of fact, the Milwaukee's Homicide Commission for years has pointed out that the the issue that was at issue in uh, most homicides is people were arguing, people who knew each other. These are uh, aggravated assaults are because people are fighting. It's not as if there was some economic necessity that drove people to go beat somebody up. 
it, it seems to fit with what you're saying here, that there are some people who are prone to committing crimes. What do you do about that? Then what, what does a society do? This isn't a matter of like identifying troublemakers in advance and uh, pre-incarcerating them. It sounds like you're saying it's a matter of finding people who already have records and doing a better job of imposing consequences. Am I hearing that right? Absolutely. It's not that we need the minority report model where I'm going to predict who's an offender before they've offended and prejudice uh, against them. But what we need to do is identify those who have already committed a crime or are in the process of committing a crime or engaged in illegal or antisocial behavior and intervene. And intervention must obviously include appropriate consequences, and that often includes incarceration. The important effect is that when you incarcerate somebody, you are sending a message to others who may consider that alternative uh, dispute resolution violence or you know, means by which of, of acquiring pocket money robbery or whatnot, and you're dissuading them by example. There is an effect where if you know that there will be consequences, you are less likely to act because you do not want to follow in the footsteps of somebody who's now doing five years in state penitentiary. So you're not going to stop a lot of, you're not going to stop a serial killer. You're going to stop a serial rapist. Their motivations are different, but there are certainly people who commit crimes of greed or crimes of impulse who view social norms as something they don't need to abide by. But if you make it clear to them that there will be consequences, it doesn't matter what you agree with or disagree with. There will be with certain fair and in a lot of cases, severe consequences. And so you are given a rational choice. Would you like to commit that crime and go to prison for five years? Or would you like to avoid that uh, and find an alternative? So we need to offer them a clear example. And so you're going to dissuade and deter crime by example when you incarcerate one person, but you do it consistently. And that's what's been missing from our system is not that people don't go to prison. It's that there is not consistent and certain consequences. It's at random. The example we can use in, in Milwaukee is we've seen that the clearance rate for homicide, and clearance is just arrest. It doesn't even mean that that person went on to go to prison and was incarcerated for that offense, but that they were even arrested, has seriously declined. And of course, it's declined across a lot of categories and declined more dramatically for lower level offenses because the cops are so overwhelmed, they don't even bother with shoplifting arrests or they're actually deterring victims from pressing charges. So we're seeing the cops not basically do their job because they can't um, or or people are unwilling to help them do their job. And therefore, more people are getting away with it. So not only are we seeing the same offenders commit more of the same crime or even escalating crime, but those offenders are encouraged themselves to commit crime and are encouraging others to do the same because there were no consequences. I can get away with it. And as long as there's that example out there that if you do something, the cops aren't going to catch you. And even if they catch you, the courts aren't going to do anything about it. There's going to be no repercussions and nobody's going to think twice because there's no downside. And and that's the problem here. Well, okay, and you and, and you speak here about uh, some policing issues, and it sounds like this is this in part is a function of manpower. Uh, Mayor Johnson, who seems to be, he's, he's paying attention to crime. Clearly, uh, he's 
he has some awareness that this is a major problem for the city and that policing needs to uh, to be stepped up. Uh, he was uh, just last fall, of course, he's celebrating that Milwaukee was adding 50 police officers because they got uh, a chunk of money from the from the uh, federal government to do so. But even then, he was lamenting that it's just filling in vacancies and retirements. But as you have also pointed out in other work for Badger Institute, this isn't just a matter of Milwaukee cutting the number of police that it it funds or is willing to hire. It can't even fill all the vacancies that it has. It's It has a hard time getting people to want to be police in the city. Am I understanding that right? Absolutely. There is there is a culture that is hostile to police that comes from the top down. And obviously, to incentivize somebody to take a job where you are not wanted and not appreciated and not allowed to do that job is very difficult. Why would you want to be both hated and hamstrung? And that's exactly the choice that they're telling people. Oh, we'll give you a signing bonus Uh it kind of reminds me of that uh, guy with a fishing pole and a dollar and somebody's chasing the dollar around. It's this piddling amount of money and you're humiliating yourself to get it. And the people who are often the, the richest uh, you know, hunting grounds for new cops are people who have cops in their family. But cops who are retiring, quitting out of frustration and disgust are the least likely to recommend other people join the profession. And so that phenomenon is happening across the country, but it's particularly egregious in Milwaukee, where we've seen the declining numbers of total staffing strength and the inability of the police leadership and the city city council and the mayor to step up and say, we want you, we need you, join the join Milwaukee's finest. And their inability to do that and to continue to sort of dance around uh, and say, oh, well, we're going to we're going to look at this or we're maintaining levels or it's flat, you know, whatever. It's it's ridiculous. This this latest report just came out from a consultancy for the city council saying that they need to add 11 sworn positions. And that's after last year's budget cut. I believe it was 16 positions off the uh, total authorized strength. Well, that's sort of theoretical because, in fact, there are fewer cops than there were 25 years ago dramatically. There are significantly fewer cops than there were pre-Floyd. And more importantly, there aren't any cops to fill the vacancy. So you're putting a drop in a bucket and the bucket has a hole in it is, is what this 50 new officers recruiting class is. We are seeing so many officers resign and retire in a given year. You're not you're not filling the bucket uh, that is that is so depleted by throwing a little bit in if you can't retain the people who are going out. And that's the problem is that if we could stem the bleeding, it would be effective to add officers. But right now, they're not even trying to effectively stem the bleeding and get to the morale problems that are besetting the department. And if they don't solve that problem, this is all futile. It's it's truly a Sisyphusian task. They're rolling the ball up the hill only to roll it back down again. And, and the recruitment problem will not be solved if the resignation and retirement problem isn't. We, we just had a Supreme Court race, and uh, the victor is a Milwaukee County Circuit Court judge who, uh, as it turns out, her record included some fairly egregious cases in which uh, uh, she seemed to... Uh, she seemed to not see a problem with uh, light sentences and seemed to have a predilection for, I don't know, what I would say is under sentencing. 
that's a judgment on my part, but uh, it's not an uncommon one. A lot of people were seeing some criticism for her like this, but she is one of many judges who, uh, about whom you could say they seem to be going awfully light on the consequences. So too, as you mentioned, the uh, Milwaukee County DA's office has a uh, what sounds like a comparatively light hand when it comes to asking for sentences for even charging in serious cases. To what extent, whomever police arrest, are they going to be running into a problem? And is it a problem that's resolvable in the way Wisconsin prosecutes and sentences criminals? That's that's exactly it. it. It becomes demoralizing for an officer to do all the legwork, all the arrest work, and see the perp back on the streets with no consequences because the judge either let him out on bail or under sentenced him, so he's out in a short period of time on probation or parole, and he's right back at it. And they're arresting him again, only to see it happen. So there's no incentive to put your neck out if it's not going to come to anything. So some of the clearance rate rate issues, some of the uh, morale issues are being driven by the Milwaukee County District Attorney and the courts, the judges, that their policies need to work in tandem with the police and at the end of the day, the Department of Corrections uh, for parole and probation services, as well as the actual, you know, good time credits and things like that, where people earn early release. And obviously, famously, it's been a scandal in in Milwaukee with the parole board. Uh, those different parts need to work together like a, a well-oiled machine, where whatever direction we're taking the system to swift, certain and fair consequences, to more severe punishments, to less severe punishments, they all have to work together. So if the cops are at odds with the prosecutor and they're bringing cases that the prosecutor won't take. They'll stop bringing cases or if they'll just become frustrated and uh, do that. If the prosecutor isn't working with the police, then the, the prosecutor is also frustrated that the police are bringing them bad cases or cases that they know they won't prosecute. And if the judges are under sentencing, uh, the prosecutor doesn't want to bring the cases to the judges so they know they're just preemptively going to drop it or not pursue it because they'll spend their time on other things. And if the Department of Corrections is going to release people early or the parole board is going to release people early, why does the why do the judges even feel like they need to sentence people because they'll be out in a few years anyway? So it becomes sort of a, a, a catch-22 for everyone involved where they're all conditional on one another. And if they're all not working in the same direction, then they're at odds. And it's undermining everything about what public expectations are for safety when any one of those gears in the in the work isn't working together with the other gears. Milwaukee's not unique here in having either crime rates that uh, that, that are this uh, this worrying or having so dysfunctional a uh, set of consequences. Other places. Other large cities have suffered this as well, and some of them have gotten better. What has gone right? What has to go right? Who has done well? And what are some of the lessons Milwaukee can learn from those places? Are there specific reforms that improve both the handling of crime at the police level and at the consequences level? Well, the first issue is a morale issue with the police. The police need first and foremost, to know that they're supported and that their efforts will be backed up 
both financially, but also uh, on policy level and uh, on a on a morale basis. Where if they uh, stick their necks out and take a risk to take in an offender, they won't be targeted and won't be politicized. They'll get a fair hearing um, if any kind of misconduct is alleged. The same thing goes for the prosecutor. Now, obviously, in Milwaukee County and across the country, most prosecutors are elected, but that that falls on the public to both monitor what's going on in the courts and what's going on with the prosecutor and to act. If that means to oust the prosecutor and find somebody else, that means they need to act. They need to do that. Uh, Unfortunately, we have seen many of these reform or social justice prosecutors win because everyone was asleep at the switch. They weren't aware that the lofty rhetoric of some of these progressive prosecutors uh, actually meant something and they were going to enact their agenda. And their agenda was that of leniency and, um, you know, coddling of criminals in many cases. And, and that's, uh, uh, that's a huge problem. What you're talking about sounds like a cultural change among other things that to the extent we're a self-governing society, every one of us has to uh, start projecting a better attitude about this. Absolutely. I mean, this is a, a culture question. It is a question of what What do we want out of public safety? Do we want to be safe? Do we want to believe in justice, that there are consequences for people's action? And what those consequences should and would be need to be determined at the ballot box. They need to be determined at a debate. But if you disagree with what's going on from the city council to the mayor all the way up to the DA and even, you know, in the case of the, the governor and, and and how judges are appointed in Wisconsin, you need to take action. You say this is a priority. And more important than anything, I think, is not to let Republicans or Democrats or independents get away with platitudes. What do you mean? What is the practical effect of what you're saying? What does that look like? And then the media has an obligation to explain that in detail. I think so much of our problem, and I know you as a former journalist uh, would either agree or at least have a good perspective on this, is that we have such a clickbait media, and it's it's not new to the internet, but we want to cover this last homicide or whatnot. But enterprise reporting where perspective and context is added to this 800 this 800 word article it needs to be 3000 words or it needs to include a lot of data dives it needs to explain things uh in their history and context and who's doing what and why and there's almost no attention span in the media to do that because they're not going to get more clicks on an article they spend a thousand man hours on than they one they spend an hour on so they don't care and or if they do care it's not a huge priority for them. And in criminal justice reporting, so many of the reporters themselves either don't understand the system or aren't asking the right questions or are focused on the here and now, the shiny object of this latest horrific crime, or they're just sympathetic to, for want of a better word, soft on crime policies. And those ideological blinders lead them to not ask tough questions. And when we don't ask tough questions, both on the public side and on the media side, we're left in the dark. And that's really what happened over the last 15 years, is that we became very complacent in what is going on in our criminal justice system because we had the luxury to do so. 
crime had fallen not just in Milwaukee and Wisconsin, but across the country so dramatically over the last 15 years prior that why did we worry? Just to give you an example, in New York City, there were over 2,400 murders in 1990. They had declined slightly by the time Rudy Giuliani had become mayor in 93 to 2000. By 1997, when Bill Bratton, his commissioner of police, left office, it was 600. And only a decade later, or two decades later in 2018, it was 300. We're now close to 600. Now, that is not great. It's just as bad as it was in the 90s, but it's going the wrong direction. And Milwaukee is an outlier in the sense that it is continually going up year on year, and it has risen more dramatically in Milwaukee as a medium-sized city than most places. But we're going in the wrong direction, and what, what we learned, the lessons we learned of the 90s are being forgotten. And the public is to blame for that. It's a complacency that we were so safe and secure by the mid 2010s that we didn't care anymore. We were we would we preferred rhetoric that that felt, you know, soft and warm about how we're going to reform these people and how we're going to solve all the world's problems with another poverty program. And it just harkens right back to the 50s, 60s and 70s. Uh, a culture where criminals had rights above those of innocent victims. And it just reminds me of Pat, you probably appreciate the uh, famous uh, dear officer Krupke in West Side Story. I'm, uh, as we mentioned earlier, I'm, I'm, I'm depraved on account of I'm deprived. And it goes through a series of excuses as to why this offender is a juvenile delinquent or is causing problems. And then the solution is a social worker. And then the, so, the social worker's solution is actually a psychiatrist. And then, but nothing involves actual consequences and nothing involves actual accountability and culpability. And that lack of an accountable culture and the public's lack of desire for an accountable culture is how we got here. Thank you. This has been very enlightening. I've, I've much enjoyed this talk and uh, sounds like there's a lot of work to be done, but it None of it is is uh, hopeless. It's all doable. Thanks again. Thank you so much, Pat. 